Welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. <laughs> uh, I love that we're doing this again. Live from the living room. This is a show of improvised horror stories. She might. I'm sure she's listening. If not live, then at some point. We miss you, Lauren. <laughs> but this, this is a show of live, improvised horror stories. Every story begins with a title I've never seen, and then I go from there. Building. I've been building up steady social media things, bit by bit. A Twitter exists now, at Quarantine Spook. Oh, <laughs> Eventually, there'll be a podcast platform that will exist within the next couple weeks of this recording. But uh, follow Quarantine Spook for more updates on that front. <laughs> there wasn't enough room for Quarantine Spook Show. That too. <laughs> I improvised. Anyway. Alright, the first story is called... The Ultimate Wombat Frisbee Adventure. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a champion of Ultimate Frisbee. I've played a lot in my day. Ever since I enrolled in Delaware County Community College, Ultimate Frisbee was my sport of choice. I remember the first time I picked up a Frisbee. I was about six years old. I saw a round thing on the ground. I didn't know what things were. Not quite. I knew what plates were. I had that down. <laughs> I knew plates were round, so when I saw the frisbee, naturally I assumed, oh, this is a plate. So in the course of discovering that frisbee, I took some dandelions and some grass and orchestrated on the frisbee as if I was eating off of it. But then, my father came up to me and was like, No, son, it's not a plate at all. That's a frisbee. And I was just like, What's a frisbee? My father said, Let me show you. So he took the frisbee without hesitation, and he just threw it. As far as I could see at the time, and also there was a hill in front of me, it made it over the hill. It certainly wasn't that far of a distance. 
but since it was on an uphill uh, incline, it went over the hill and seemed much further out of distance. So to a six-year-old like myself, I was like, that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I didn't know things can go that far so quickly, despite already being in cars at the time. But again, I was six, I was fathoming the world one piece at a time. My father said, yes, it's called a frisbee. And he said, hold on, I'll be right back. So I ran over the hill. Didn't know what he was planning to do. Until he returned with the frisbee. And he said, here, you give it a try. You just toss it like this. And he made a hand motion as if someone was throwing a frisbee. And as a six-year-old, I thought it seemed simple enough. So I grabbed the frisbee and I tossed it. And it went pretty far, farther than I expected. But that's the nature of frisbees. They use air resistance to seem like they hover and then they just land. That was what I learned about frisbees as I studied physics at Delaware Community College. <laughs> Having my specialty be in frisbees, casually, they didn't have a frisbee class at uh, DC Cubed. But even though I enrolled in a, as a physics major and I took all the classes I could in it, I used that knowledge to master throwing frisbees. And more so, Mastering Ultimate Frisbee, my favorite game. More than likely the best game that I'm at. Sure, I've played my share of Frisbee Golf. Ultimate Frisbee and Frisbee Golf have a lot in common. But, but I but I knew that uh, Ultimate Frisbee was my sport. It was a place I went for bliss, for serenity, for knowledge, and wisdom. <laughs> so one day I was uh, eating lunch on the quad. <laughs> With my friend who's an anthropology major, and uh, also he took classes in... Uh, Sciences concerning animals, you know, biology and whatnot. Learning about different regions and about the wildlife that exists in those places. We talk about our classes, and as I speak about physics, I inevitably talk about frisbees and all the ways frisbees can glide on air, under which temperaments, under what kind of weather. Other which regions of the country, if not the world. And how humidity plays a factor in frisbee tosses, which it's not a lot really. It's marginal if you calculate it, but like it's to to an observer, to a novice, it's uh not that big of a thing. And they he talks about their classes and whatnot. And then eventually he brings up wombats, and I was like, okay. Wombats are pretty cool, you know. I don't know much about wombats, you know. I'm more of a bandicoot person. Even hedgehogs, I think they're pretty cool. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, wombats are pretty badass, you know. They kept going on of all of his knowledge about wombats, which I didn't quite know at the time, you know. My wombat knowledge was finite. So, at the time, I couldn't tell you much about wombats, but boy howdy, this guy told me all he knew about wombats. Uh, I learned so much about wombats during that one simple luncheon on the quad. So we're chatting, and he's talking about wombats, I'm talking about frisbees. And he talks about, hey, have you heard about the Wombat Club? And I say, no. What is that? Oh, you know, it's just a club on campus. It's kind of like a fraternity, but not quite. It's a bit unofficial, a bit underground for Delaware County Community College standards. And I was intrigued, you know, I uh, dabbled and studied uh, the Freemasons and whatnot, and uh, Illuminati and all that jazz, you know. So it's like, oh, Wombat Club, you know, that sounds cool. Yeah, and they have a really badass Ultimate Frisbee tournament. And that's truly that got my attention. Ultimate Frisbee. Everyone knew that I was the best on campus when it came to Ultimate Frisbee. So I said, oh, how do you uh, get into this uh, Ultimate Frisbee tournament? I said casually, not trying to suggest that I was super interested in joining the Wombat Club just to play Ultimate Frisbee. Though I was dying to know, I'd give anything to play any sort of Masters at Ultimate Frisbee just for, just for the sake of a challenge because I've played all around the region on Delaware County Community College and Delaware County itself and no one has bested me in Ultimate Frisbee in at least eight months so I thought maybe the Wombat Club could perhaps provide a challenge at least on my skills of Ultimate Frisbee so my friend says yeah yeah there's a there's like a password and all that stuff all the spooky culty th stuff you know that takes with uh, underground college clubs you know I'll give you the password, and then uh, we can go to a party together. How about that? And we can, when we meet someone who's in the club at that party, we can uh, ask about Ultimate Frisbee and see how you can get enlisted. And I said, great. I love Ultimate Frisbee. Again, trying to seem casual, but it seemed like my friend noticed that I was super into joining the tournament, so he kind of gave me the information. Really helped me out like a bro. So that Friday, we, uh, Go to the woods. Yeah. Uh, bros on campus, boy howdy. So we go to the woods and we. So we enter the woods and uh, we find an uh, an old, more decrepit building, still still technically on campus. From my understanding, it was mainly used for used for storage and whatnot. You know, I didn't think much of it much of it whenever I walked by it, but it was on campus property and I noticed it certainly, but I didn't know it was actively used for any reason. <laughs> what could go wrong? 
So me, uh, my friend, and uh, go to the door. Yeah, he taps on it four times in a specific pattern that uh, per that that I noticed specifically. And uh, someone cracks open the door, and he says, "What's the password?" He leans in close and says, Ferengeti. Then the door shuts, then it opens again because it was on one of those, like, keep those like, chain locks, you know. He opens the door and he says, alright, come on in. So we go in and, uh, a nice, uh, swell party is happening, you know. All the things that you expect at parties, you know. Vibrant, uh, psychedelic lights, but it's also mostly dim, so, like, the vibrant, uh, color lights stand out. Some sort of, uh, music is playing with, like, a heavy bass to it. It's not house, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not EDM, but it's good. I think I've heard it before in a Pandora playlist I listened to a year ago at some point. I half recognized some of these songs, so I was like, alright, this isn't that an exclusive party, you know. So we're walking around chatting with people. I didn't recognize any of the faces. I turned to my friend and I said, are any of these people students? And he says, well, yeah, some of them. Not all of them. And that gave me pause. I didn't know what that meant. Not like I'd find out later. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know how this experience would unfold. We're doing some more chatting, more college party things, uh, you know. All the Jaeger bombs, uh... Uh, the car crashes, which is just like a Red Bull and gin, I think. I don't know. It was booze with caffeine. That's all you gotta know about those. So then I'm chatting with this guy, and he says, yeah, I'm part of the Wombat Club. And I'm just like, oh, I hear you have an ultimate frisbee competition that you have. And he looks around, makes sure no one's listening. He's just like, how do you know about that? And he says, oh, my friend told me. And he says, oh, who's your friend? So I pointed at the friend that told me all about the Wombat Club uh, across the room, like, ah, oh, that guy right there, uh, Daniel. And he's like, alright, Daniel, I have met him before. But yeah, so you're interested in the, uh, Ultimate Frisbee competition. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at Ultimate Frisbee. And he said, I heard, with a groan, and I'm just like, oh, well, what's, that, what's that supposed to mean? And he said, well, you know... You're good at Ultimate Frisbee, sure, but I don't think you know the real version of it. What Ultimate Frisbee really is. Do you even know how Frisbees were invented? And I said, yeah, sure, it's a little round disc that you throw across uh, air resistance and it lands somewhere far away. And it's just like, whoa, that went really far for a little uh, exerted effort for that. And he said, no, I don't think you quite understand what Frisbees are about. about. Let alone wombats. So if you really want to know, we can enter you into the competition and you see for yourself. And I said, okay. A couple months pass. It's getting near the end of the semester. And, uh, finals are kicking in, and everyone's getting, uh, sick a little bit from stress, you know? It's the, uh, you know, there's finals week, and then there's hell week. And then hell week is the two weeks in preparation for finals week, and everyone gets stuffy noses and 
that whole jam, and I get my stuffy nose, and I'm just like, I'm not, hope I'm not too stick to, sick to study, and, he, and I'm just like, oh, I guess I'm, I guess he's not. The protagonist. I don't remember if it was first person or third person. Let's say first. I think that was it. So I, as I'm studying, I get a phone call. Because this was back in 2008, when phone calls were more commonplace. I got the call, and I get a voice, it's a number I didn't recognize, and it says, uh, yes, you're interested in the Ultimate Frisbee Tournament? And I say, yes, I am. And he's like, alright, great, meet at this location, and, uh, we'll see you then. And then hangs up not saying anything else. Then I get a text message, because 2008 wasn't far enough back where you didn't get text messages. Except it might have been during the time when like every text was like charged like 11 cents or whatever. It was a dark time. <laughs> anyway, get a text about the location. So I'm driving out. And I thought it was a little suspicious because this was in Montgomery County, one county north of Delaware County. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. So we, uh, the coordinates end up at a park, and then there's another squalid building there. You know, probably another shed-type thing, similar to the one on campus, not quite the same. But I picked up that the Wombat Club, uh, took advantage of decrepit buildings and reutilized them for, uh, club-based purposes. And I was into that, you know, recycling infrastructure and all that jazz. You know, I think that's a part of the betterment of society, but that's a... a Anyway, that's part of my term, term paper that I'm writing. You know, that's just finals uh, language in my head, you know. But anyway, back to the story. When I went to the park and uh, that building, I knock on the door and uh, they open it. It's just like, oh, yes, we've been expecting you. And I walk in and it's uh, a lot of people in robes. Whatnot. Everyone has a different necklace that indicates something differently. And I'm just like, ah, oh, this looks like a cult. That must be what the Wombat Club is all about. And I was like, alright, well, I'm ready for the tournament. I don't know why it's taking place at uh, 11 o'clock at night. That seems like an obscure time to play Ultimate Frisbee. I mean, usually it's a daytime sport, in my opinion. Some people argue that. It's not a daytime, it's not a sport at all, but I'm just like, well, I would argue it's a sport. In fact, I wrote a blog article about, on a, on like a sub ESPN site. It wasn't ESPN, but it was like a blog owned by ESPN, and you didn't get paid for it, but I just wanted to convey my opinion that Ultimate Frisbee is totally a sport, but that's besides the point. Why are we meeting at night? So everyone's in robes and hoods, and I'm just like, oh, this is spooky. So he's like, are you ready to play Ultimate Frisbee? And I'm just like, yes, I'm ready. So the cloaked figure says, all right. He opens a refrigerator and hands me a Frisbee, face up, which, when you play Ultimate Frisbee, you hand it face down, because that's how you throw it. I don't know why he would hand it to me face up. Pulled up a large pot, grabbed a large ladle, and slapped some stuff on it. But when I looked closely, it looked like entrails on the frisbee, as if he was using the frisbee as a plate. 
And I'm just like, this isn't how you play Ultimate Frisbee. And the cloaked figure said, yes, it is, actually. You see, the Wii, we play Ultimate Frisbee by uh, a different set of rules. What you have to do is eat these entrails as fast as you can, as much as you can. We will serve a serving of entrails, raw, some random organs, on different frisbee plates. You eat as many as you can. Whoever eats the most frisbee servings the m wins ultimate frisbee. Wombat style. I'm puzzled. <laughs> this is when I'm conflicted. As a self-described champion of ultimate frisbee, I didn't want this to muck with my reputation. There are a lot of different types of rules to ultimate frisbee that vary from region to region. And I wanted to be a master at every iteration of ultimate frisbee, so reluctantly, and dutifully, I agree. I eat the entrails on the first few. <laughs> I gobble it up. They didn't give you utensils. I just used my fingers, slurped it up. And then when I finished it, faster than they expected, by the way, I said, all right, next plate. And it hands another plate, which was a frisbee. And I slurped that up, you know? Seems like time is a factor, isn't a factor. It hurts my stomach because it's raw organs, but I don't worry about that. I just keep slurping it up, and I'm just like, alright, next one. Now, I've never been uh, very good at eating contests. I've failed plenty of them, mainly with pie and hot dogs, but if it's in the context of the framework of Ultimate Frisbee, I'm all for it. By the end of it, I have five Frisbee plates worth of entrails. And that's when I'm like, alright, I'm done. My willpower has exceeded. And the cloaked figure says, ah, it's very good. You've made it to the next bracket of the Wombat Club Frisbee Tournament. And I says, ah, oh, that's, uh, I'm ambivalent about that. Okay. I mean, of course I did. I ate so many entrails, like five plates worth, you know. And hey, wh where did these entrails come from anyway? And he said, oh, your friend that told us about, that told you about the Wombat Club? That's his entrails. They are human entrails. And now you're a cannibal. So I ponder, and I'm just like, well... I don't like that I ate human entrails. <laughs> but I must become a master of ultimate frisbee. So I just say, fuck it. Give me more, and he's just like, shit, damn, you know, even for cultist cannibals, he didn't expect, you know, that sort of enthusiasm. <laughs> so he serves me another round of frisbee plates, and I gobble them up, and he says, usually when you enter the next bracket, you just wait another day or two to digest, because that's how eating contests work, and I say, I don't care, I'm a master of ultimate frisbee, and I must prove it, and he's just like, all right, jeez. So he feeds me some more. I eat those plates. And then the next day I arrive again during the daytime. And it's just, I'm like, I'm ready for ultimate frisbee. And, I said, and they said, we didn't think you'd arrive so soon. And I said, I don't care, feed me more entrails. And they're just like, all right, shit. So they feed me more of the frisbee entrails. And I don't even pay attention to the tournament stats anymore. I just gobble up the frisbee plates of entrails. 
and a week like that goes by. All seven days, I had several servings of human entrails. And then by the end of it, the cloaked figures are right. Not only are you a high-ranking member of the Wombat Club for your performance at the tournament, but you've also won the Ultimate Frisbee Tournament. And then I just sit there, my belly full of people, <laughs> blood oozing down my lips, yeah. and a frisbee in my hand. And uh, I just tossed the frisbee. We were outside at the time, and I watched the frisbee go over a nearby hill, and then descends behind it. And I just think. proves <laughs> that you're hungry yeah <laughs> that was gross yeah <laughs> i mean you wanted i did you wanted murder i asked yeah. for it and i got well, it the people demanded it and <laughs> yeah that's precisely what happened over here mm -hmm. already a one Give me blood. i think the <laughs> the real challenge was really incorporating Wombats and frisbees into so one well. story and also making it a horror story. Dart loved it. Good. He, I, all snuggly. he looks very comfortable. He loved was... hearing about human entrails being eaten on a frisbee. Yes. <laughs> you know, I can relate. Birds or entrails are also great on frisbees. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just eating them raw. That's a whole different challenge. Maybe not if you're he used to it. Them, but that person's in the story. Yeah, so he, you know, he just, he wanted to be a, you know, ultimate. I underestimated Delaware. <laughs> I underestimated Delaware. You know what? It may be a two-hour drive, and it may have been underappreciated in Wayne's World, but <laughs> there's a lot going on in Delaware for sure. Yeah, they're thirsty. Oh yeah, thirsty. they they know how to they know how to party. You know. Yeah, Delaware thirst crap for entrails. Mm-hmm. So that was the first story. <laughs> <laughs> that was my most specific title, I think. I it's funny that you brought uh, made it a college story because that's uh my college had an ultimate frisbee team called the wombats well i i can't think of really like a competitive frisbee in any other context besides college you know but like the protagonist was really pushing for ultimate frisbee to be a bona fide sport and maybe it is i don't really know that much about frisbee you know or even wombats so i just kind of Ran with it, and I think uh, I think we all learned a valuable lesson. Yeah. All right, well that was a spooky story. It had frisbees, uh, symbolic wombats. How very spooky indeed. Totally. Now, I'm gonna pull the next story out of this hat. This next story is called Unprecedented Times. 
If you would have told me that life existed on other planets, I would have said, yeah, sure. You know, it's plausible. If life can happen here, it can certainly happen anywhere else. I think if anything can happen, it can happen twice. Unless you analyze these very hard-nosed mathematical principles of it. Maybe everything can happen once, but at least to human perception, everything can happen more than once. And in the context of life on other worlds, I could certainly think, yeah, it could happen anywhere if it can happen here. But I considered it specifically unprecedented when I found that crashed alien spaceship in that cornfield outside my house. Truly unprecedented. <laughs> what a time for it to be unprecedented. <laughs> now, the spacecraft was empty, and I was just like, alright, if I crash somewhere, I would probably get out of that crashed uh, vehicle. But that meant there was an alien type person wandering around Earth, and I was like, well, I gotta find this person. I gotta be the one to find this alien. And then when I re when I reveal this alien to everyone else, everyone will realize how unprecedented these times are. Not having to do with current events specifically, you know. People think it's unprecedented now. Well, to wait till they find out that they meet another intelligent life form. Not including cats, or dogs, or any other animal because they have their own specific intelligence that doesn't quite apply to our societal needs, which is okay. You know, chimpanzees, they got their they got a soul behind their eyes, but you know. But aliens though, that's nuts. Gotta find this alien in this cornfield. So I'm just like, well, if aliens exist, I, I analyze the spacecraft and uh Look at the control pad, it's just a bunch of, uh, it's in a language I don't understand because it's an alien language. I don't know how to operate the equipment. And the equipment, uh, the language of it, you know, I had no idea how to operate this vehicle. I tried to find any stray objects in it. And I had no luck. So I'm just like, alright, I'm just gonna wander in this cornfield with my flashlight and find this alien. And the reason I was fought in this cornfield with this flashlight is because I was looking for ghosts. I had a camera with me at the time. I always thought this cornfield was very spooky without aliens, and I was like, I gotta find ghosts, you know, because this uh, COVID quarantine is uh, getting me pretty bored. So I just want to find some ghosts and spook people out, you know? So I wandered the cornfields, trying to find ghosts. Not having any luck, with with the exception of just me being spooked myself. Because, I don't know. Cornfields by yourself are spooky. I don't know. You know? It's hard to... Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> I tried to find the alien. With my camera and with my flashlight. I knew the cornfield well. It wasn't my property, it was my neighbor's property. He was a farmer. He grew a lot of corn. He he was the kind of person that would definitely have no qualms with chasing someone with a shotgun if 
someone trespassed because, you know, that was his livelihood, the corn was. Especially during the COVID pandemic, so... I didn't want to be chased with a shotgun, but wanted to find an alien. I was conflicted. So I thought, alright, I'll keep the camera on, on night vision, keep the flashlight off so the farmer doesn't find me, and let alone the alien would find me. And also, I didn't know what this alien looked like. So I was just, uh, searching for a needle in a haystack, an alien in a cornfield. So I kept looking, just walking around the corn. Reminds me of that one, uh, story about corn. There's multiple horror stories about corn, because cornfields are spooky. That's why I tried to find ghosts, but anyway, I was looking for aliens this time, because I saw a spacecraft. And I took a picture of it with my phone, so I had, like, the evidence if, you know, if the alien, like, repaired it and, like, left, I'd be like, no, oh, aliens do exist, you know? the entire evening wandering those cornfields not really knowing what I would find if I would find the alien if I would find myself but I just kept walking every stalk of corn you know I moved it to the side and it whipped back in place despite my uh, trespass in it, because that's the way about nature. It doesn't matter how you participate in it, it always whip back into shape. I think humans can learn a lot about that, wandering around through cornfields in the dead of night, anywhere between midnight to 2 a.m., or maybe upwards of 4 a.m., before dawn, or even the precipice of dawn before the sun went up. And you thought, yeah, Life is really minuscule compared to the grand scheme of things, even just looking up into the stars and you think anything is possible, including finding aliens, which by gum I would find that alien, because if I found that alien, people would really think it would be unprecedented times. keep walking through the cornfield, you know, being plagued by my own inner demons, because the corn provokes that imagery, because corn is spooky at night, I just have to reiterate that. And I knew I'd find that alien eventually. There were many moments when I walked past the corn sulks, and I heard a noise behind me, and I thought, what was that? But no, it was nothing, just my own imagination. Until at one point, at about 2.07 a.m., I hear some moaning. And I was just like, I wonder who that could be. And I go up, I, I sift through the corn stalks, brushing them aside one by one. And then I see none other than the alien. He's wounded. And he's sitting there in the soil between some corn stalks because we're surrounded by corn. And it's uncanny how much he looks like a very stereotypical Roswell alien 
like the gray skin and like the big head and the large black eyes. The whole gamut of, you know, Roswell alien fiction and the Americana uh, belief in UFO aliens and whatnot. So I thought, there he is. And he had his arm sprained and his leg sprained. And I thought it was unprecedented. And I approach him. I don't know. He speaks a different language than mine, so I don't know what to say. So I try to communicate in a way uh, with someone who doesn't speak your language, just emphasizing body language. But since it's an alien from a different species, I don't even know if the alien would know that much. So I try to communicate sincerity and empathy. And I turn my flashlight on so we can have some light to chat with. And the Ross Roll alien spraining its, uh, gripping its arm, gripping its leg. You know, humanoid features, surprisingly, but just, you know, again, the big head and the gray skin and the black eyes. That's the main difference. Thinner muscle structures, but you know, if you Google uh, Roswell alien on Google, it will look strikingly similar to that. You know, those conspiracy theories might be. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. These conspiracy theories might be true based on this experience with the alien. So I kneel at the alien and say, Hey, are you okay? Is there anything I can help you with? Do you need medical aid? What kind of medicine do you need? I, I bombard the alien with questions. Not knowing if the alien would understand. And then he grabs my neck and he pulls my head in closer. And then he mutters into my ear, I need your soul. And I say, huh. Excuse me, Roswell alien. My my throat's all. <coughs> it's not COVID, I swear. That's a that's a virus that we have on Earth. Probably not something you have to worry about. I doubt you can contract it, but you know it's. But it's not that. Even if you can contract it, it's not COVID, I swear. Just my throat is clogged. Don't worry about it. <coughs> I just need a moment to clear my throat. Please don't worry, Roswell Alien. This is a pinnacle of the human species. I don't want to fuck this up by having something in my throat. I swear it's not COVID. first human encounter with an alien species, presuming that those UFO sightings in the 50s and 60s weren't real. Just being all like, listen, I'm just clearing my throat, I don't have COVID, I just had something calling it, please don't let this uh, socially alienate you, but you're wounded, can I try to uh, help your wounds to some capacity? And the alien just stares, you know. I'm 
not even sure if he knows English in any capacity. I don't know what language he speaks. But all I know is that he said, I need your soul. And that troubles me. Because I like my soul, you know? Even if souls are just a symbolic construct, you know? I like being me. I like existing as I am. I kind of don't want to give that away to help an alien, as much as I'd like to help the alien, you know? I'm not willing to take that away, despite how unprecedented it is to encounter an alien. The alien... So I, I, I say to the alien, finally, I don't want to give you my soul. I don't have any souls to give. If that's the one English sentence that the, uh, the alien could speak, maybe he would understand that. He pulls my head in again, and then he mutters, It's not your choice. And I didn't know what he meant by that. So then he opens his mouth and just starts giving a very extravagant inhale, like he's wheezing. smoked a lot of cigarettes in his day, and he just wheezed in a large inhale, and then I start to feel weak a little bit. Not physically weak, but existentially weak. It feels like I'm dying, but my body is fine, and I'm just like, wait a minute. If I didn't know any better, I'd say this Roswell stereotypical alien was stealing my soul at this very moment. I saw my skin wither as if I put applied too much hand sanitizer, like it was susceptible to paper cuts or whatever. And I'm just like, no. So I start running away, realizing that the Roswell alien is stealing my soul. And I'm just like, Roswell alien, stop. But he doesn't care. He just keeps inhaling. And I start running through the corn, going through one stalk after another knocking them down. I don't even care if I damage the farmer's core, and even if it's his livelihood, I'm trying to save my life here. And I keep running, and the cornfield is next to my house. So I run out of the cornfield and go to my house, and then I suddenly I collapse into the grass outside my back porch. I don't know if it would have, I don't know if it would have made a difference if I made it into my house. But I felt weaker. I felt like I was dying. And then suddenly, the Roswell alien reveals itself from the cornfield behind me. And I turn around, and the alien says, Thank you. Now I can go to my home planet and talk about Earth and all the shit that's happening. And maybe we can send aid or something, because obviously your federal government is not doing anything. Like, some federal governments are doing okay, you know. I know that your planet is not at a phase that it's uh, working as one unit yet, but, like, goddamn, you're ways away, and you need a bit of assistance. I'm aware of your show, Star Trek, and I know you have a prime directive not intruding on other... Uh, developments of civilizations, but goddamn, you guys, you got, you need help. So we're gonna go, I'm gonna go to my home planet and tell them about this shit, and we're gonna come down, and we're gonna help out. And then I'm sitting there, my soul being siphoned from me, 
hearing this message, knowing that it can help society at large. And then I say to myself, this is truly unprecedented times. It is worth it is a uh, worth noting when I had the title "When President the Times," I kind of thought, "What could possibly be more unprecedented than COVID?" So I just thought aliens, you know, because <laughs> I mean, what else would it be, you know? Talk, talking buffalo. Talking buffalo. That's yeah. that's also a category <laughs> of unprecedented for sure. <laughs> TV coming back. Oh, I wish. That would be unprecedented, but yeah. if only. Yeah. Too far-fetched. Aliens is a better choice. Too far-fetched. I think, yeah, I mean, <laughs> aliens coming by the to help. The World Series being relaunched and having it be successful, that would be unprecedented. Aliens helping, out, helping us out with the COVID <laughs> pandemic is more likely than MTV being good again. <laughs> I'll say it. I think it's true. I mean, yep. I don't even know what MTV's doing. More reality television. I don't watch cable anymore, except maybe at a if there's a TV on, you know, but it, it's not doing great, especially now, you know. Not that I'm against this uh, premiere Zoom content, but... <laughs> <laughs> Premier Zoom content. I mean, I'm 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 down with the Zoom content, you know. I want to see some uh, runway looks uh, with Zoom. I want to see. I mean, I guess I could just put it on the internet, but I just want to see a Zoom version of that. Mm. Everything I want, I want everything to be on Zoom. And see how good it can get. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Because <laughs> it's awful right now. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice to see how Zoom can get, but also, you know, Exhibit A. Exhibit A. Yeah, yeah. We're witnessing part of it. I don't Isn't know. This is what they did in the before times. Yeah, everyone just got around a piano and yeah, they like got their talents out and story. They told stories. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's got drunk and high. And we're just like, here's a stupid just like story that I just how about that? How about this person just died in the story? How about aliens? Yeah. How about this pie? I mean, <laughs> I, I I like the uh, I like the two stories that came out so far. Yeah, they're I both love very them. special. Yeah. Already thinking of fan art. I'm not sure. Good. I'm. I, <laughs> by the way, I do love your fan you, art. It's truly. I'm like, I don't have people to sketch live anymore, so now I'm just fan arting your stories. That but I, I love it. You know, I love <laughs> the, uh, I love the strawberry fan art. I love the cucumber fan art. I'm down that it's all produce fan art, but. Well, it's, it's not gonna. It can't. It's not anymore though, because now there's no produce. Unless I pull another produce story. I, I don't know how many produce stories are in there. Apparently those, it was I think more, those were just the <laughs> Okay. Apparently it was more than one. I think you know. they just have a thing for produce. Yeah, I mean like well <laughs> Well like when we leave when we leave the house socially it's for grocery shopping, so we're exposed to a lot Maybe of produce. Maybe I'm just processing and I can't stop, so I'm just like, yeah. You process however you want. You know. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm good at I love it. these stories. 
I I love Quarantine Spook Show. I know you do. It's your show. Yeah, I would love it to be weekly, and it'll be. Re- I would love to release it as a podcast, and it will just be out and about. Even if you what don't. What happens when What happens when we're not in quarantine anymore? I thought about this, <laughs> but so I called the show Quarantine Spook Show. And even if we, even if it's not a quarantine, I still want to continue with the show. Okay. Just for the title to iterate that the quarantine was the soil that the show grew from. Oh, God. That's a it's, lot. It's like the, uh, it, it's like the, uh, the little, uh, verbal message at the beginning of South Park episodes about saying, like, oh, celebrity voices perform poorly. Like, you know, that message. Yes. But, like, court, the name Quarantine Spook Show would be like that, you know? Okay. So even if even if uh, like the pandemic is like long gone, the quarantine spook show can live on. People are like, oh, why is it called quarantine spook show? It's like, oh, it started from the quarantine. It's like, ah, I see. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Welcome back from intermission. I don't know how seamless this was to anyone who fast forwarded through it, but. Now it's time for more spooks. Okay. Needless to say. was ticking. I thought that letter I received was very suspicious. I felt like I was a Johnny Depp character in some random thriller movie that he did for a paycheck. It was a letter that said, hey, you only have so much time to die. You're running out of it. Better hurry. I received the letter at my doorstep. I had no idea what it meant. Borderline nonsensical, even. So I thought, alright, no time to die. Well, if I have time to die, I think everyone has time to die. You could argue that that is life. But maybe if I have no time to die, then... 
means I had to do something that required time. And then suddenly, probably an hour after I received that letter, I got a phone call. And I answered it. I said, yes, hello. And it says, oh, your cousin's at the bank. They're being held hostage. I'm just like, what, what are you talking about? Your cousin, Donnie, they went to the bank. And then suddenly some bank robbers came in and now they're holding, it didn't go well. And now they're holding it hostage. Everyone that was in the bank at the time, including Donnie, is being held hostage. You gotta hurry over there. And I'm just like, all right, geez, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I guess there's probably media coverage or whatever. I'll probably hang out like a, there with police. They're probably all there. I'll just go to that bank, see if I can help out if I can, or at least spectate it, you know, maybe try to contact Donnie. Me and Donnie go way back, childhood friends. We played a lot of football, a lot of ultimate Frisbee. I wouldn't call myself a champion. Not like that dude, uh, what's his name? went to Delaware County Community College who was super into it. But it's, this story isn't about him. I thought he was a douche. He would do anything to be a master of Ultimate Frisbee. Not like me. I don't think it was hot shit. But I liked football. That was okay. It was a good way to bond with Donnie. And damn it, I loved Donnie. So I was going to go to the bank and see if I could help out Donnie. Maybe call him on the phone. Text him, etc. Use Zoom. You know, that's what people are doing these days. So I go downtown, in front of the bank, Chase Bank, and then the hostage situation is happening, it has the police, has the helicopters, the whole shebang. It is a bonafide hostage situation. And I think about that letter I received about having no time to die, and again I thought, wouldn't the time you spent before dying be life? Therefore, if having no time to die, that means you would just die instantly. I didn't want to have no time to die, because that would mean I was dead. I wasn't ready to die quite yet. Nor were those hostages at that bank. So I thought, alright. And I, uh... There's a bunch of police squad cars. There's a hostage negotiator, you know. I didn't actually think hostage negotiators existed. I mean, this city's police department is kind of, you know, so I, I didn't, I didn't know they actually, like, did things like this. Things that actually fit into the framework of, like, television police fiction, which is very romanticized and, uh, arguably was problematic in terms of, uh, considering, uh, criminals as people who made bad decisions, or really, criminality comes from, uh, long range of just uh, systemic uh, issues that cause them to commit crimes just for the sake of self-preservation. But criminal fiction really depicts it as them making bad choices, which I didn't disagree with. But in this particular case, was, there were police, there was a hostage negotiator, they were actually doing the romanticized thing that they were doing, not really problematic, just trying to help people in this one case. I thought that was great because my cousin Donnie was in there and I wanted to save him in any way that I could. So as long as people that were on the job that weren't bored and were doing the things that they were trained to do, then by gum, you know, 
that's my degree of agreeing with uh, law enforcement in this country. If it's actually applicable. In this case, it was. This isn't about my grievances with law enforcement, you know. I didn't have time to die, so I just went. I asked the random police officers, like, hey, there's uh, my cousin Donnie's in there. And the officer said, yes, yes, we know. Donnie's in there. Also, uh, several other people. Um, you know, there's seven people total. Donnie's one of them. We got our nego top negotiator on the job because it's a it's a wasn't a busy day in hostage negotiation. Hostage negotiations don't often happen, so often top negotiator top negotiator is available. That's just how our police department runs. A little bit problematic. Not really optimal, considering the best way to help people, especially during a pandemic. But in this case, it is the romanticized version of it is just coincidentally fitting the mold, which is great. I think that's how it should be, but often never happens. But in this one case, it does. So I say, well, can we can we do anything? Can I talk to the uh, bank robbers? And the police officer says, says well, there's only three. There's three of them. Seven hostages. Our hostage negotiator is talking with them on the phone right now, trying to let some hostages go, or however they're going to do it. They're going to try really hard to escape with the money, but our scheme is to let them go with the money for a little bit, and then once they release all the hostages, then we capture them. So I nod and said, okay, okay, that sounds like a good plan. And then the cop says, do, what do you even know about law enforcement or hostage negotiation? Like, what are you doing here? You're just kind of like butting in as a civilian. And I say, well, I worked for the C CIA. I was a spook, you know. I did a lot of espionage work myself. I know a thing or two about, you know, dealing with people. And it's just like, oh, well, I didn't know. Such a high-ranking government job. I think that's pretty cool. Hey, uh, I s actually sent a submit, uh, job submission to both the CIA and the FBI. Is there any way you can uh, help me out with the CIA? And I say, well, you just it's just like any other job. You just apply and see how it goes. Sometimes people scout you out, but that's a whole different thing. But if you just apply like any other job, maybe you'll hear back. Uh, usually if you have uh, uh, training in uh, police law enforcement, enforcement or FBI training, you know, you may not be as applicable because they want a specific type of training, but that's a different discussion. I just want to help my cousin Donnie, come on! police officer says, all right, well, if you're such a big wig, big shot CIA agent, we're at least working to the CIA with some capacity, even at a bureaucratic level, I think that's pretty cool. You know, you can, uh, maybe you can talk to the, uh, uh, people robbing the bank. It's three of them. Maybe you can make a difference. Talk to our hostage negotiator. You know, maybe he'll, you can convince him to help out. So I say, okay. So I, I approach the hostage negoci negotiator on the phone. He's chatting with them. He seems like he's having a lot of trouble uh, chatting with them, trying to persuade, trying to persuade the uh, bank robbers to not kill anyone or not uh, do anything nasty to the hostages. You know, it could be anything. You know, 
I can't really walk around in the mind of a bank robber. I'm sure it's unpleasant, you know. Especially a Chase Bank, you know. A lot of bank robbers often go to, like, smaller banks or credit unions. Where they're more susceptible to being robbed. Statistically, you know, from my understanding of bank robbery, that's kind of how it goes. I remember when I was growing up, growing up in my hometown, I heard that my credit union was robbed, and I was just like, shit, really? I don't know, people still did that. Considering, with the, <laughs> considering this renaissance of transparency and all that. <laughs> oh, we're so fucked. Anyway, I talked to the hostage negotiator, and I said, my cousin Donnie's in there. I'm a CIA agent, coincidentally. I just kind of showed up here. Is there any way I can help out with this situation? And the hostage uh, negotiator said, yeah. They're willing to make an exchange uh, with the hostages they have in there and change it for uh, civilians out here. No one's willing to make that sacrifice because who wants to be a bank robber hostage? That sounds very unpleasant. With the exception of that one episode of Keenan and Kel, when Keenan was just like freaking out, trying to get out of handcuffs or something. I don't remember that episode well, but it sounded like Keenan Thompson was having a good time. Sorry, that was Kel Mitchell who's doing that bit. I haven't seen Kel. I haven't seen Keenan and Kel in a while. It's not on television anymore. It is an artifact of the '90s. You know. But this is a real-life bank robbery that coincidentally fits in with the romanticism of police work in these situations. So I think it's great that you can help out. So they're willing to exchange some hostages for civilians. If you want to volunteer yourself as that civilian, you know, I would be down for it. I would be into it. And I said, yes, I too would be into it. Tell them that I'm willing to comply. So the hostage negotiator... Calls the, uh, bank robbers on the phone. It's just like, alright, we got an civilian that's willing to make a trade. Uh, and the bank robbers are just like, great, yeah, come on in. So then the trade commences. One by one. The, uh, hostages come out. All seven of them. And then I, the, uh, CIA, uh, employee, uh, Make my way in. And then I see my cousin Dami, Donnie. I make eye contact with him, saying, Hey, I totally saved you. This is all my doing. And then Donnie just made a look, just like, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. That was really dumb on your part. I don't know why you would do this. You know, being a bank robber hostage, it's not that life-threatening if, uh, if you know what you're doing, but you kind of just, like, walked yourself into a a very unpredictable situation, so good on you, I guess, but goddamn. Well, if you get out of this, contact me. And that was all exchanged through their one fleeting glance, you know? That's how well they knew each other. They played a lot of football, so they knew these lines as well. This storyteller hasn't played that many, that much football, almost none. So I go into the bank. The three bank robbers are there. They got assault rifles, which seems, uh, overdoing it. I mean, I think you can do the same job with a pistol, but, you know. I've seen enough Unsolved Mysteries episodes to know how to rob a bank, certainly. 
you know. But again, I was a civilian, you know. So I just sit, I sit on the floor with my hands on my head, you know, showing that I was unarmed. The three bank robbers are just like trying to look tough, you know, they got their sacks of money. They brought pillowcases, which, you know, I would have brought like, you know, like Monopoly sacks or something. Or like sacks with like Monopoly guy faces on them, just to show up. But pillowcases work just as well for grabbing like large amounts of money. And one of them turns to me and says, Oh, did you get my letter? And I say, What what letter? I'm trying to be coy. But he says, Oh, the one that's uh, talking about you having no time to die. I didn't know what he meant by that. So I kind of just thought, Well, I got a letter about having no time to die. But I didn't quite know what that meant. Wouldn't life in general, being having time to die? And I said, yeah, it did. You see, the three of us, we robbed the bank, knowing that Donnie would be making a deposit today. But, uh, we knew he was your cousin. We knew you cared about him. We knew you were off duty, so you knew you would rush to help. So we sent that letter knowing you had no time to die, because we both, we all knew you had no time to die. And I just kind of, I felt a bit puzzled. Like, I don't know what you mean about having no time to die. If I'm alive right now, then obviously I have time to die, you know. They're just like, yeah, exactly. We got a helicopter in, you're coming with us. So the helicopter comes, uh, one of them happens to know how to maneuver a helicopter, which is very, uh, an asset in a bank robbery, I think, if you want to make a quick getaway. I thought they were doing a good job so far, because they left the bank, no one was following them, because they only had cars to follow them. But, uh, the helicopter just kind of flew over places where they couldn't drive, and they got away. Which was kind of a folly of the police, uh, law enforcement, you know. So it didn't quite pan out to the romanization of, uh, police helping out with hostage situations, despite all the tanks that they brought to the scene, you know. Which was just my own commentary of how overfunded, uh, police departments are around the country. And how they just kind of buy, uh, military equipment for no good reason, you know. Even if they have a tank for a hostage situation, even though a bullet can't really scar that tank, you know, if they get away, what good is it, really? But again, I'll CIA, you know, what what do I have to complain about, you know? I mean, it's the CIA, they're super problematic, you know, just like, thinking their claws in other countries, you know, causing fractures, fract expanding on fractures in other uh, governments. Not really the most morally superior uh, stance. Uh, but anyway, I was a bank robber's hostage, three of them. We were in the helicopter. We were riding over the mountains. I was waiting, I thought about the letter, about having no time to die, and I thought, well, I have the time to die because I'm still alive. You know, so it's just a helicopter ride at this point, you know, I th we enter some snowy mountains, you know, 
probably heading up north a little bit. I'm just like, oh yeah, I think I've been I skied down that mountain once because I have a CIA uh, paycheck. I can afford uh, uh, luxury ski trips to some degree, you know. So we're riding, and then suddenly we hit a cabin, and uh, the bank robbers settle, and I'm still, you know, tied up with their zip ties that they had sitting in the corner while they're counting their money at the Chase Bank. They hit a good bank. They seemed like they had, like, a nice score. Good for them, but I wanted to live, so I didn't really care about their monetary benefit as long as I could get out alive. That was my main concern at this point. So one of the bank robbers, the one that said that he sent the letter, he was just like, oh, so how do you feel about uh, having time to die? And I say, well, I'm still alive, therefore I have the time to die. And he says, no, you don't. Then he points a gun at me. And then I just say, well, this isn't quite the first time I've had a gun pointed at me before, you know. I work for the CIA. Not a very uh, exciting branch of the CIA, but it's still... It's, uh, it's still... Uh, exuberant nonetheless. I've seen some action is what I'm getting at, you know. And, you know, but... I, I don't feel threatened is what I'm trying to communicate to this bank robber. He doesn't seem to get the message, so he's still pointing a gun at me. And he says, uh... You have no time to die. He fires at my chest and I fall down. I'm still alive and I say, well, I still have time to die. I'm not quite dead yet. I say that choking up blood because I'm dying at the moment, but I still have time to die because I'm not quite dead yet, you know? And he says, oh, we brought you here because we knew you'd make the exchange. We knew it would be easier to get away without out multiple hostages with just one. We knew it would be you. And now we've hit our score. We have nothing to do with you now. He fires another shot in my chest. He hits a bone in my rib cage. Doesn't hit a vital organ. And then I say, I still have time to die. And he's just like, well, you know what? How's this? And he fires another shot, a third bullet. And I'm just like, ugh. You know, because it's hard to get shot three times and still speak, you know. And he says, well, no matter how long I'm alive for, as long as I'm alive, I still have time to die. And he's just like, ah! So he shoots me. He empties his rounds into me. He had all six shots because he didn't use any of them in the bank. Because he didn't need them, but he just did it for show. It was effective for robbing a bank because no one wants to be shot for money that's not theirs. So with all six bullets inside of me, I just lay down and I think, I guess I do have no time to die. Bleh. <laughs> we had time. Yeah. Time. Mm -hmm. Time to do it. He didn't have time to die, according to the letter. But he kept proving that he did. He, he indeed did have time to die. You know. Yeah. And he was able to process that also. You know. Yeah. Yeah, time. That's right. Well, he was trained to do that uh, at the farm. The farm. I guess it's in Virginia, the CIA training camp, whatever that oh, is. Oh, Quantico. Whatever it's yeah, 
I'm not. I'm not. I personally am not a CIA employee. I don't really know that. I read like one book about it, and like an audio, uh, radio interview. I think we should all just go back to calling it the farm instead of Quantico. The farm, the funny farm. I thought it was called the farm. You know, it probably was or is. Sure. I don't know. I'm in, I'm not in with those people anymore. Yeah, I mean that that was my understanding of it from the uh, John Kiriakou book, when he was talking oh, that's about. Right. He was uh, in prison for two or three years, and then he incorporated his CIA training to surviving in prison, which is very effective and also very dark in a lot of ways. But, you know, that's both CIAs and prison, you know. Well, what a quite extravagant evening of spooks that we've had so far. We've had... Frisbee, Wombat, Cannibal-based spooks. In Delaware. In Delaware. Delaware County Community College. We've had spooks in cornfields with aliens in unprecedented times. And we have spooks when you had no time to die, only when you're about to die. But... But while you're alive, you have plenty of time to die, which was what the protagonist communicated in that last story. But then, until he died, he's like, oh, I guess I have no time now, and then he died. And that was the end of that. So you have no time to die when you're about to die, is the moral of that story, I would say. <clears throat> now it's time for one more story in this quarantine spook show on April 21st, 2020. <laughs> All right. for this one. <laughs> this next story is called Escape from the Battle into the Mouth of Fairies Zelda Journey. What? In the world? <laughs> Who put that in there? That's why I had to drink more.
level so hard. <laughs> I screamed as I threw the controller against the screen. It was the first dungeon in Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. You know, everyone knows that level. It's the first dungeon when you have to fight that it's not the final boss, but it's like the secondary boss, like the sub-boss, where you just like fight like a giant ape, and it's just like with a boomerang, and if you win that fight, you get a boomerang, but it's just kind of like, what is the deal with this fight? And my friend Dean Marino, I call him Marino for short, Marino says, this is an easy fight. All you have to do is just like ram yourself in front of the pillars and then you just like, you got it square. It's done. And I just say, but it's just a pain in the ass though, you know? And he says, well, you must be bad at video games if you can't handle this one. And I say, fuck you, Marino. You don't know anything about video games. You can't even play Call of Duty. And Marino shouts at me and he says, I'm not good at first-person shooters, okay? Platformers are more of your thing. And you're fucking this up, so I think you're not good at this game. And I say, Marino, you know what? I thought we had a solid friendship when I showed you that uh, PS1 low-res demo disc. Haunted PS1, I think it was called. Has a lot of cool games on it, including the, uh, Sauna 2000, you know, that's a really special minigame, and the ramen game, that was really cool. And Marino says, whatever, man, you know, you're just into first-person shooters, you know, you just play Call of Duty and you play Halo all day, you know. I remember when Halo 2 came out, you just, like, played it all day and pissed in a bottle, and that was even when... That was even when Halo 3 came out, but you still played Halo 2. And I said, hey man, I was really fucking good at Halo 2. You know, just whatever. Even though it had like a less, a lower amount of just like, uh, online players on it when Halo 3 came out, I still played it. I peed in a bottle. I was dedicated. And yeah, sure, platformers are cool. I'm good at those. But this fucking monkey level is just like nuts. This chimpanzee throwing a boomerang and all that. Yeah, but if you beat the level, you get the boomerang. And I'm just like, whatever, Marino. What do you know about video games? And I just say, and he, Marino says, I know more than you. You know, I've seen like web series about the making of Crash Bandicoot and Myst. It's really fascinating. You know, they had a lot of trouble marketing Myst for a good while and also trying to like incorporate the narrative to like the puzzle solving but they fucking nailed it if not with Myst then at least with Riven you know and I'm just like whatever man so I throw the controller at the screen as if it's a Mario Party game and I just storm out of the room I'm out of storm out of the house and I just smoke a cigarette because in the house I live with with like six other housemates we're not allowed to smoke cigarettes in the house, which is cool. Not everyone's a smoker. Half the house has sensitive lungs. I respect that. But goddamn, when I'm stressed, I just smoke a cigarette and just sit on the porch and just, like, think about shit. And in this moment, I was just thinking about how my friend Marina was an asshole for shaming me not being good at Zelda games. You know, whatever. It's a platformer. You know, platformers are easy to figure out. Even if not right away, even if like the structure is simple. But I was just like, man, 
whatever. Makes me think of that book I've been reading about fairies. It's an anthropology book, you know. It's uh, encompassing the uh, encompassing the history of fairies, uh, the folklore of it, and uh, Ireland, Wales, all of the UK, really. I forget the name of the author. W. B. Wentz, if I'm getting that right. I'd have to look at the book cover to get it right. But uh, apparently, uh, J. R. R. Tolkien was uh, influenced by it to some degree. His last name was Wentz, at least, so if you type in Wentz and fairies and anthropology, you can probably find the book. But I think about that book, and I think about Legend of Zelda, and I'm just like, oh, I love Legend of Zelda. And then when I read that book, I was just like, oh, this isn't quite Legend of Zelda. But it's pretty close, I could see this being like a source material, because there are fairies in Legend of Zelda. So it's like a similar vibe, even though it's kind of like watered down in the form of a video game context. And I thought that was cool. So I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette on my porch, you know, in the outskirts of Philadelphia. And, uh, let's say Plymouth, Plymouth meeting, which isn't very far away. It's pretty far away from Philadelphia, but they have the Schmitter restaurant close by. Boy, howdy, do I love my Schmitters. It's a very particular kind of sandwich. You know. I think they sell it in, in uh, sports arenas, maybe. But there's one bar that I go to in Plymouth Meeting that's really the fucking bomb. So I'm smoking outside uh, of my house in Plymouth Meeting with my six or seven other roommates. I don't keep counting anymore. My friend Marino comes out and says, like, hey man, I didn't mean to shame you about your uh, weak-ass Zelda platforming skills. I mean, Zelda games are pretty simple, ultimately. I don't know anyone who's been stuck on them, whether it's like Majora's Mask, Breath of the Wild. With the exception of the first game, the first game is like pretty hard. You know, I even had to go through a walkthrough for the last two dungeons on the first Zelda game for the Super Nintendo, or the original Nintendo, I'm drunk, but I didn't mean to shame you about your platforming, platforming skills, and I just say, yeah, whatever, I mean, you know, really, I play Zelda games for the aesthetic appeal, you know, I think it's really cool, the world they bring. I mean, like, I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan, but, like, there's some fantasy, uh, things that I'm into, you know. I picked up this one fantasy magazine from the 70s that I've already forgotten the name of, which makes me feel ashamed, because I really want to plug the shit out of it, because it's an archive. I can't believe I found it. I bought it for 20 bucks. It was profound. A wonderful time capsule in fantasy fiction in the 70s. Maybe I'll plug it in the description of the podcast if this was a... If this was a horror story podcast, I would plug it there, but... But yeah, I just play Zelda to just, like, bring a sense of place, man, you know? It doesn't matter, like, even if I can't beat the game, even if I spend the entire game in the first dungeon, you know, I can still just, like, feel the, the profoundness of just, like, playing Link and just, like, being in Hyrule 
and just like trying to rescue Zelda. I think that's very profound. And Marino nodded, and he's just like, yeah, man, I get that. And I know you've been reading that uh, fairy book a lot. And I know you just want to encapsulate that world. So I got a new game for you. It's just a brief demo, not like a, it's not like high class shit, but it's just like a, you know, there's definitely a trend of just like low res PlayStation graphics uh, being incorporated into mini games. They're not all zingers, but some of them are fucking zingers, and I think this is the zinger. So I think you should play it. Now it's just like, oh yeah, what's it called? And Marino says, Escape from the battle into the mouth. A fairy Zelda journey. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's a very specific title. It's almost like someone... It's almost like someone wrote that down specifically who's super into The Legend of Zelda or whatever. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably how it went down. He's probably high. Or at least sober. Probably sober. Because it's a very specific title. But I think you would like it. So I'm going to send you a link. It's a free download. Play it whenever. I didn't mean to shame you on Legend of Zelda. You just play Legend of Zelda at your own pace. And I'm just like, alright, I will. I don't have to play video games performatively, you know? So later that night, Marino left. It was like 2am in the morning. I was, uh... Inebriated on whiskey and PBR. And I really wanted to nail down that first part of the Zelda dungeon in Twilight Princess. But I was just like, fuck it, I'll play Escape from the D Battle into the Mouth, a fairy's Zelda journey. I'll play that game. So I booted it up on my computer, and I was just like, alright, this is pretty cool. It was a. had a PlayStation 1 graphics. And the uh, narrative of the video game was that uh, you just escaped a war battle from Hyrule. Not like a Legend of Zelda-esque battle of uh, Hyrule, but like as if Hyrule was a real place and you just were in an actual war there in like in medieval times. And you had like uh, spears and uh, swords and all that. And at this point, you were just trying to get the fuck out of Dodge. So you were fleeing the battle. You were escaping from the battle. So you run and you run. And in low-res PS1 graphics, you were just like, oh. I was just like, oh yeah, this is cool. Reminds me of when I played video games when I was a kid. When I played like Tomb Raider or Crash Bandicoot or whatever. This is really fucking cool. I like this game so far. I'm fleeing a war, like in a Pharaoh to Arms, you know, just fleeing war, because fuck war, right? So you just heading out of there. And suddenly in the game you enter, uh, you find a threshold of a cave. And you think, oh, this must be part of the game, so I guess I'll enter this cave. So you enter the mouth of the cave after you escaped the battle. <laughs> so you're in the cave, you're doing a... It's a pretty simplistic game, you're just like capturing, you're just like getting treasures, fighting skeletons. The skeletons are just like the most... 
Skeletons are both a formidable foe in this type of game, you know. So we're just like doing like dungeon shit, you know, just like fighting baddies and like getting treasure. It's usually how it goes in those types of games. You don't really think much of it, but you really appreciate the trend of PS1 games, of uh, of uh, independent games having PS1 graphics. And you're just like, yeah, I'm into it. Marino really gave a good call suggesting this game. But then you think of the third part of the title, Into the Fairy's Zelda Journey. And you're just like, huh, I guess, uh, maybe this makes a reference to Legend of Zelda or something. Nothing too spooky. So you go deep in, deeper into the game and you're just uh, collecting treasure and just being badass, you know. Because that's what happens when you're in a dungeon game that's in uh, PS1 graphics and it's pretty easy. And then suddenly you see a... You see a fairy creature. But you recognize this... But I recognize this creature from the anthropology fairy book that I've read about a specific story, uh, a folklore tale portrayed in Ireland about a fairy that would steal babies and people and would only trade them for gold if alchemists could make them. But no one in, in Ireland could ever make them, so they would just steal people. So I played this game peculiarly, recognizing this fairy, thinking, oh, this developer surely is very well researched. So my character walks up to this uh, character and says, like, oh, hey, uh, hi, I'm trying to beat the game. I think you're a obstacle in this. Do you mind getting out of the way? And the fairy creature says, obstacle indeed but it comes at a price you must uh, sacrifice your most coveted Zelda game in order to save yourself otherwise you will die and be banished to the uh, PlayStation low-res world in other worlds death in, in essence if you don't uh, submit a Zelda game that you like, I will kill you. And I'm just like, oh shit, it's an accurate game. How did this game know that I love Zelda? Then I thought, well, like, a lot of people that like video games like Zelda, you know. And I thought that was pretty strange, uh, in particular. So... I play the game and I, I can't really beat that boss because I need a Zelda game, but I don't know how to do that in the confines of the video game. So I just uh, shut off the game and go to sleep. And I wake up the next morning uh, feeling a sense of dread, feeling uneasy. So I text Marino and I say, hey Marino, um, we were playing Tw Zelda Twilight Princess. That was my favorite Zelda game because it was the first 3D platformer Zelda game that I played. I mean, a lot of people like Ocarina of Time and Twilight Princess, which is respectable. Or even the original Zelda, because it's, you know, it's the first one. 
but like Twilight Princess was the first game I played. So I like to, uh, I would like to, I know I'll let you borrow it, Marino, but I'd like to, I'd like you to bring it back to me. Marino texted back, and he said, uh, it's gone. And then I just, I didn't even text back, I just drive up to his house, and I confront Marino firsthand, and I say, what do you mean it's gone? And he says, well, you know, I was playing it one day, doing my own save file, beating the final boss, which is a Ganon as like a pig bull person, you know? I mean, I know you're having trouble in the first dungeon, but I already cleared that shit, like, days ago. So I was just, like, beating the shit out of that game. But then I woke up today, and it was, it was gone, for some reason. And I thought that was peculiar, and I was like, alright, well... There's this video game I was playing that requested me to submit my favorite Zelda game. And Twilight Princess is that favorite game. And he said, well, this is a video game, so it's not like we have to submit it in real life. And he says, like, yeah, and I was just like, yeah, I know, but, you know, bring me mine at ease. Maybe there's, like, some sort of, like, code in it that I can, like, insert and, like, can help me beat the game. And he says, like, well, I don't have it, you know. So I don't know what to tell you. If I find it, I'll give it to you. And I'm just like, alright, fuck it. So I get antsy. Thinking about this PS1 low-res uh, low, low game. So I go to uh, GameStop, if those are still open. And I try to find it, like, hey, do you sell Twilight Princess here? He's like, no, that's an old Wii game. We're all about the Switch now. We're all about Breath of the Wild. We don't sell Twilight Princess, even if it's used. I'm just like, alright, well, shit. So, so then I go back to my house and I turn on the game that Marino sent me, and I'm just like, oh, this is troubling. So I turn on the game and uh, I play it again. And then the fairy is just like, you still haven't submitted Twilight Princess. Which I thought was peculiar, because it only referenced my favorite game. Not necessarily Twilight Princess. So I... I just say out loud to myself, not really thinking the game would register. Well, I couldn't get a hold of it. And then the fairy character said, well, where is it? And I'm just like, whoa! Shit! I mean, like, in this game, this low-res PS1 demo game, I already escaped from the battle. And then I went into the mouth of the cavern. So, uh, I guess this is the point of the fairy Zelda journey. But I don't have that Zelda game. I don't know what to tell you. And the fairy character, which I which resembled uh, different very fairy characters from mythology from the United Kingdom, was just like, alright. Well, if you don't have your favorite Zelda journey, I suppose you have to stay here. And I just say, stay here? What do you mean? And then in a blink of an eye, I'm suddenly in the cavern that I'm playing the game with. And I'm just like, wait, no. Why am I in this game? Surely this is a dream. The fair creature's like, oh no, you couldn't bring your favorite Zelda game. Now you're trapped in this video game for eternity. And I'm just like, wait, 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 wait. This is like that 
no, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. This is like that Goosebumps episode, uh, where you're trapped in a pinball machine. I don't want to do this. Let me, give me one more chance to get that Zelda game so I'm not trapped in this purgatory of a low-res PS1 era indie development game. And Nefarious is like, alright, one more chance. But if not, then you're trapped here for eternity. I wake up the next morning in my bed. I call Marino again. Marino, I need that fucking Twilight Princess game. Marino says, dude, I don't have it. I don't know what to tell you. So I say, alright. Marino, I'm gonna have to kill you. Marino's just like, whoa, whoa, why? And I'm just like, well, you don't have the Zelda game, therefore murder. And he's just like, wait, no, well, I'm gonna, not gonna be murdered, and I'm just gonna be like, yeah, huh? But, like, this is over the phone, so I shouldn't have revealed my murder plot over it. So I go to Marino's house, and I'm just like, and I have an axe, Jagnogos in style, and I'm just like, Marino! I'm gonna murder you! Because I don't want to be trapped in a PS1 era low res indie development video game for the rest of my life! And Marino's just like, no, get out of here! So I just like hack at his front door with the axe, and I say some sort of line from The Shining. I haven't seen it in years, but I'm just like, here's me! Because it's just me, you know, I'm not Jack Nicholson, nor am I the character Jack from The Shining. So I'm just like, Marino, you're dead now. And Marino's just like, no, get out of my house! You broke down my door, I'm calling the cops! And I'm just like, I don't care, I'm gonna murder you if you don't give me Twilight Princess! And he's just like, alright, I've been hoarding it, fine! So he unlocks this, uh, treasure chest that he has, which he, uh, claims to keep, uh, artifacts from his grandparents, which was obviously BS, because it's just full of, a uh, full of video games they borrowed from people that he didn't give back. And he gives me Twilight Princess, and I'm just like, ah, oh, thank God. Thank you. So he gives me the case. I'm excited. I have the case. So I play that video game that he suggested again. And I talk to the fairy creature. And they say, well, do you have the video game? And I say, yes, I do. So in real life, I open the case. But it doesn't have the disc in it. It is an empty case that, it, that Marino gave me. So I just kind of said, Marino! And then I was just uh, trapped in the low-res PS1 era indie development video game Fall of Eternity. All of Eternity. That's what happens when I play the game Escape from the Battle into the Mouth of Fairy's Zelda Journey. That was... Really something. That was... I wonder you had all that whiskey. <laughs> Why are you gonna make things difficult, Cadence? That was, I mean, that was, that was a lot to maneuver, but I think I nailed it. <laughs> you did I, I mean, like. I was worried for you. I was like, really? Okay, we're gonna do that? Alright. I mean, part of the show is just like, I'll accept, like, any challenge if it's in a title, but escape from the battle, into the mouth, a, fa a fairy's Zelda journey. Incorporating all of those ingredients into one story. You know what? I think I nailed it, you know? <laughs> and also, it fits into the uh, category of creepypasta stories that are just horror stories about video games. Like haunted uh, Pokemon games and all that. Sonic the Hedgehog. Insert uh, generic video game fandom. You know? 
So it fits that category. So I definitely nailed that demographic. <laughs> it got very gamey. It did. That was deliberate because it referenced Legend of Zelda. So it's like, well, where else can I go with this? Unless someone else is named Zelda. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, Robin Williams' daughter, which seems personal. More personal than I'd like to get, you know. Now what I was trying to write was escape from the bottle into the mouth. Because in the Zelda games you store potions in bottles, but then you also store fairies in bottles, so I always imagined that you were drinking the fairies. But in in the in the game the, <laughs> the fairy but in the games the fairy comes out of the bottle and then the just floats stage. around you, you know? Yeah, I don't think that yeah. I don't think they show the actual conclusion to that. Well in the three D games the fairy just floats around you and just kinda like sparkles hey, you. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, not. There was that fairy too. Yeah. Such a bitch. I think that was a very useful fairy, personally. Well, my first three D game was my Twilight first. Princess, which was evident in the uh, context of the story, you know. So I didn't have Navi the fairy. I had a uh, Midna the uh, Twilight Princess. You know, that was my guide in my first Those Zelda game. What was that? I'm gonna, I will say, the first, <laughs> truly, the first Zelda game I've ever played was the very first Legend of Zelda from the first Nintendo. They had a remake on Game Boy Advance. Yep. I played that first. That's fucking difficult. It's super it's difficult. Very hard. It's a, it's a brilliant game, but goddamn. I heard Rick roll me neighbors into playing that, and I was like, oh, I was like, is it like adventure? And they were like, yeah, like with puzzles? And they were like, sure, yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll love this. And so I sat down and I was like, when is it over, though? We've been at it for it's like one that. level. It is like, It is eight dungeons, you know. Right. And a one, like, boss dungeon, I think. I'll be honest with you right now. You keep having to I never finished that first over game, over and I was just like, and never went back, really. It was a lot arena of time. I went back. Uh, I would I like to play that. I would like to play Breath of the Wild. I think that'd be great. Okay, so anyway, I've read uh, four stories, so I'm going to do this thing real quick. Well, that was a very spooky set of uh, stories, you know. Had aliens, bank robbers, Legend of Zelda, wombats, frisbees. All the spooky things you could imagine. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, quarantine spook show uh, performance. Follow Quarantine Spook Show on twitter.com slash quarantine spook. I would like to, there would likely be a uh, podcast iteration of the show within the next couple weeks that this episode is recorded. So tune in for that, unless you're listening to it at the moment. And thank you for joining us at a Quarantine Spook Show. Yeah, that's 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 enough. <laughs>